Studios of WGMU in Fairfax, Virginia, this is Loose Vegan Indeterminate. Loose Vegan Indeterminate is the podcast of the Economic Society at George Mason University, a registered student organization committed to guiding students, organizing events, and provoking discussion to amplify George Mason's reputation as a destination for economic students. I'm your host, Dominic Pino. Our guest today is Dr. Brian Kutzinger, who was not called that the last time I addressed him in speech. Uh, Dr. Kutzinger earned his PhD from our esteemed department in 2019, and I had the honor of taking his intermediate macroeconomics class while he was a grad student here. He is now at Angelo State University, located in Texas, where I hear everything is bigger and it's like a whole other country. He is also affiliated with the Texas Tech-based Free Market Institute, whose forthrightness in naming I appreciate tremendously. He specializes in monetary policy uh, and macroeconomics, which will be the focus of our conversation today. Uh, Thanks so much for calling in, Dr. Kutzinger. Oh, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here, and it was an honor to have you as a student. Oh, well, I appreciate it. Um, the, uh, the You are our second guest calling in on Loose Vegan Indeterminate. We had uh, last week's guest called in from Washington, D.C., which was not quite as far away. Would you mind saying where you're calling in from? Sure. So I'm calling in from San Angelo, Texas, uh, which is in uh, west-central Texas, so basically somewhere between Lubbock and San, An- San Antonio in a north south direction so sort of in between those two places uh from a north south perspective all right and is it true that everything's bigger there it is uh it is that is that is correct even uh <laughs> even our tumbleweeds are bigger here we had we had a tumbleweed roll down the street recently that was like the size of a christmas tree wow. uh, so that's definitely a, a fair characterization i can't even imagine i can't imagine a tumbleweed of any size rolling down the street let alone one of the as big as a christmas tree so uh that's that's pretty remarkable all right so um like i said you 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 kind of specialize in in monetary policy macroeconomics and i think that's a good topic to to get into because um it can be pretty confusing a lot of the times because it's something you kind of hear about on the news you kind of you know the federal reserve will make some announcement but you're like what does it really mean and so um I guess we're going to start off with a super vague question that might be difficult to answer, but what is monetary policy? When we say monetary policy, what do we, what do we mean by that? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, what do we mean by that as economists, and um, what kind of tools are available to make monetary policy? All right. So it is a broad question, but it's, it's, it's possible to give a pretty general, I think, answer that encapsulates it, which is that monetary policy is, is essentially management of the country's money supply to achieve some macroeconomic objective, right? So by law, the Federal Reserve is supposed to pursue monetary policy in a manner that's consistent with price stability, meaning you shouldn't be creating too much inflation, uh, basically, uh, and then also maintaining full employment. What they mean by that uh, is that, that monetary policy should be used to ensure that the economy is essentially operating on uh, or operating to its full potential. Uh, and so you want to balance those two things. But the, the challenge, of course, is that if you if you are if you're unsure about what the economy's potential is, and we and we are because we can't actually observe it in real time, we don't actually know. Uh, the problem there is that if you think that perhaps unemployment or employment is below uh, its its uh, excuse me unemployment is above its natural rate, so there's too many people unemployed is what I'm trying to say, then you should essentially increase aggregate demand by, per, by pursuing an expansionary monetary policy, which in short essentially means let's increase the money supply. Uh, the, down, the, the trouble there, though, is that if you, if you increase it too much, now you're in violation of the Fed's other mandate, which is to keep prices stable. So there's kind of a juggling act here that the Fed has, is essentially trying to pursue uh, two objectives. One is maintaining full employment, and the other is ensuring that uh, 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 monetary policy does not become itself a source of macroeconomic instability. Okay, and and, and that juggling act is, is carried out by the Federal Reserve and the the Board of Governors, right? Yeah. So yeah. So there's there's a couple different decision making bodies within the Fed. So there's going to be the Board of Governors, but then there's also the the FOMC or Federal Open Market Committee. So both groups are responsible for making. Uh, monetary policy decisions, although the specific decisions that they make vary by the, the governing body. So the FOMC is going to make decisions with respect to uh, the Fed, the, the Federal Reserve's target of the Fed funds rate. So the Fed funds rate would be the 
rate that banks loan money to one another overnight to ensure that they have the the minimum required reserves on deposit at the Fed. Uh, so they would they would set that sort of rate. A board of governors is going to have is going to make decisions about other uh, other tools of monetary policy. But yes, basically you have this FOMC as one kind of governing body. The board of governors is kind of another, and they you know at least ideally would work together to promote uh, some objective that's consistent with ma- you know monetary and macroeconomic stability. Mm-hmm. And when a certain kind of free market economist hears all this talk of the Fed creating. Uh, macroeconomic stability or trying to preserve macroeconomic stability might be a better way to say it um they're 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 they they get on they get on high alert and they are kind of nervous because they because uh, the federal reserve has kind of gotten a, a bad rap among certain free market economists um do you th- what is the source of that kind of tension between um free market economics and the federal reserve and uh, do you think it's fair I th- so to answer the fair question, I think we need to first take a step back and look at the different criticisms that you might get from free market folks about the Federal Reserve. So one argument you would get was, is a very Hayekian type of argument, which is that, look, the central bank faces certain knowledge problems that make it difficult for it to achieve what its stated, as a, its stated objective is in practice. So for you know, going back to the natural rate of unemployment, for example, or sometimes you'll hear them talk about the natural rate of interest, these are useful economic concepts to help us understand the economy, but if we're going to use them, the challenge we face is that we don't actually observe those sorts of rates. So policymakers face a knowledge problem, and because they face this knowledge problem, it's possible that rather than promoting stability or or ensuring stability, that the monetary authority itself becomes the source of instability, meaning it becomes that which it is designed or intended to prevent. So there's there's a knowledge problem, I think, criticism. There's also an incentive criticism. So this would be coming more from, like, the public choice side of things, which is that, look, the, the Fed is itself a bureaucratic organization. It is, therefore, subject to the various types of incentives that bureaucracies are subject to, meaning that it may have, for example, an inflationary bias. Uh, and the, re- the, the argument there is pretty straightforward. It's just basically that, look, the Fed is essentially a nonprofit firm, but the way to the way that that people who work for nonprofit firms are able to extract income from a nonprofit firm is to essentially uh, select, you know, uh, select operating procedures that are inconsistent with the least cost methods of production. So, for example, you might have better health insurance or more comfortable desk chairs or bigger monitors or whatever. The point is, is that that sort of that sort of bureaucratic incentive could lead to an inflationary bias. And then there, the other issue, and of course this is very relevant today with uh, Trump. Um, today at the general sense, not today exactly, uh, mm-hmm. but Trump uh, uh, tweeting about the Fed and what the Fed should be doing and trying to, you know, browbeat, so to speak, uh, Jerome Powell and, and the rest of the, the monetary policymakers into pursuing a policy that, that he believes uh, is either good for him. I'm, you know, for him, he may believe that it's the president that is, may believe that it's good for the country as well. But the point is, is that policymakers are also subject to influence from both the president and Congress, right? Fed is a creature of Congress. Fed could, or excuse me, Congress could abolish the Fed. It could change the Fed's mandate. It could do anything that it wants at any time. So ultimately, uh, Congress is the, is the boss mm-hmm. uh, of the Fed. And because of that, that then opens up the, again, the sort of public choice criticisms of how bureaucracies are actually used. So the problem, I think, is twofold when we look at some of the free market objections to the Fed is we say, look, on the one hand, they lack the knowledge uh, necessary to accomplish their goal because essentially the way, they're, they're, the way the Fed does monetary policy, it's not unlike essentially driving a car by looking in the rearview mirror. <laughs> you're trying to figure out where you're going by looking at where you've been, mm-hmm. and that might work sometimes, but you can also imagine where it would go very poorly yeah. uh, for you. Uh, so so there's, a, there's that, the knowledge problem and then the incentive problem, which is that ultimately we should probably not assume benevolence uh, on the part of policymakers, but rather be somewhat, uh, you know, hard-nosed about the incentives that policymakers face. Even economists, even economists that know about the incentives, mm-hmm. are still subject to economic analysis and, and responding to incentives. So I think that's kind of the the broad the broad criticism of 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 the Fed from a 
uh, from a free market perspective. And, and, and as far as that goes, I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but from there, you get, you get division. So there'll be some people who say, well, we should just abolish the Fed altogether. Mm-hmm. Right? Sometimes, they tell, sometimes they discuss what they think we should have and, and, and replace it with or whatever. Uh, other people, uh, you know, someone like Milton Friedman, for example, favored uh, mo- different monetary rules to basically say, like, look, you can't, you can't use discretion to promote macroeconomic stability for the reasons we just discussed. So instead, the Fed should follow a rule, and, it, and at least in theory, the rule could get around both the knowledge problems and the incentive problems because you take away essentially the discretionary power of monetary policymakers. So I think, the, I think broadly speaking, the criticism is fair. There are, of course, criticisms of the Fed that come from free market types that I think are either a misunderstanding of how monetary policy works uh, or just a kind of, I don't want to say overly ideological, but there can be just kind of like a, you know, I'll give you one example, kind of like a natural aversion to say like the idea of like fractional reserve banking or whatever, like that can tend to bring out uh, some folks that I think sometimes can levy unfair criticisms uh, at the Fed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, your, your point about um, pressure from the president is certainly, um, you know, Trump Trump has made it easier to do that with Twitter and has probably been a little bit cruder than than previous presidents have in, in his in his method of doing that. But I remember in your macroeconomic class, we had to read a paper about um, Arthur Burns and Richard Nixon and how uh, that was something that was going on back then in the in the 1970s. Could you maybe uh, maybe touch on that a little bit? Sure. So it's not a new development uh, that the president would pressure uh, the, the monetary authority. Uh, and in fact, I mean, my own view, uh, and again, this is not com- like I'm actually kind of an outlier on this. My own view is that it's a mistake to really view the Fed as being independent ever. I think that's an overly romantic view of, of politics mm-hmm. uh, and monetary policy. But uh, you're absolutely right. So we have evidence from uh, uh, the Nixon tape. So, you know, most people are probably familiar at this point that Nixon recorded a lot of stuff and actually kind of got him in trouble. <laughs> uh, uh, so, he, But he recorded his conversations with Arthur Burns, and, and he understood monetary policy perhaps better than we might think a president does, in that he basically was telling Arthur Burns, he says, look, you know, I don't really care what you do after April 1972. Now, keep in mind, there's a presidential election coming up in November 72. Mm-hmm. But I don't really care what you do after April 72, but I need you to pursue. I'm not, these are not his words, but, but this is what he's saying. I need you to pursue an expansionary monetary policy prior to April to ensure that aggregate demand increases in such a way that, that unemployment falls uh, and inflation doesn't get too far out of control by the time the election is rolling around. In November, so here we have uh, Nixon explicitly calling uh, uh, on Arthur Burns to essentially help him win re-election. So this gives mm-hmm. rise to a whole literature on called political business cycles, right? So the idea here is that business cycles aren't necessarily caused. Well, let's put it this way: business cycles can be caused by a lot of things, but one source of a business cycle could be the president or some other political entity pressuring monetary policymakers in a way that leads them to make decisions that ultimately lead to a recession. Mm-hmm. Nixon, of course, is not the only one to, uh, uh, to do this, so let's not pick on the Republicans too much. Uh, Lyndon Johnson physically assaulted William McChesney Martin, I think it's McChesney Martin, uh, here in Texas. Uh, his Jeez. Here in Texas. Uh, yeah, like pushed him up against the wall and everything, and, and basically the idea was that he, he, he was like, I need you to uh, pursue a more expansionary monetary policy to help me fund the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is nothing new uh, that um, that there would be this sort of pressure. And I think if you go back through all of history, even you know, getting away from central banks, there's just there's always been a link between the state, money, and banking. Uh, not necessarily a good link. I'm not defending it, but mm-hmm. there's a link there that has existed throughout time. So I think it would be naive to conclude that that for some reason we've managed to transcend that or whatever. I just think that you know Trump is making it a little bit more obvious what what has basically always occurred mm-hmm. yeah he's he he has a way he has a way of doing that doesn't he um uh so <laughs> yeah um uh so i guess my next question is um kind of going with that that historical perspective on monetary policy that we kind of uh, touched on a little bit there um you know there was there was a time when the united states was on something called a gold standard there was a time when the gold standard was just the way that people did banking uh for 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 a long time uh 
Could you would you mind explaining for listeners what the gold standard was? Sure. So it was well, the, throughout different time periods, the gold standard might kind of mean different things. So I'm going to give a very broad definition that could apply to a number of different uh, uh, a number of different circumstances. So. Really what a gold standard is is a, is a system wherein money is meaningfully denominated in gold. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that a gold standard doesn't necessarily mean, and in practice wasn't the case, that gold was the only type of money that was circulating, right? So there are, of course, examples of gold coins circulating and whatnot, but in general, the way that the, the gold standard, for example, in the United States worked after World War, excuse me, after the U.S. Civil War but prior to World War I was that gold served as basically what are called bank reserves, meaning gold would sit in the vaults of banks. Banks would issue redeemable bank notes, right? So it might say Bank of Brian, and this is a $5 Bank of Brian note, which entitles the bearer to $5 worth of gold on demand, meaning I could show up with the $5 note. Right, let's say you because I'm Bank of Brian. You know, Dominic can show up with the $5 Bank of Brian note, and you're like, I would like to exchange this for gold. Mm-hmm. You could do that. Now, oftentimes most people didn't bother doing that, uh, and the same thing would happen with issuing, say, checkable deposits. So the idea here would be that the deposits, checkable deposits, time deposits, savings deposits, and the and banknotes would be redeemable for gold at some pre-announced rate. In the case of the United States, one dollar was defined as .04838 troy ounces of gold, ninety percent fine. So that's that was what, how it was actually defined. Meaning, when I show up and I try to and I and I give you a one dollar bill. Right, the bank should be giving you 0.04838 ounces of gold, uh, 90% fine. That's what it means to be meaningfully denominated. So, uh, what what that means though is that uh, the gold is essentially serving as a as the base money or the monetary base. It's kind of the foundation of the banking system, but of course, it's not the bulk of the money supply. Uh, but the money supply would adjust in response to. Uh, movements in the quantity of gold uh, in, say, uh, the world, or, or there, this is kind of a debate among gold standard folks, whether it was uh, uh, the Hume's price specie flow mechanism, meaning that gold is moving across borders whenever there's kind of an, an e- a disequilibrium between countries, uh, versus uh, uh, the purchasing power parity view, which is that uh, gold wasn't actually moving, it was at the prices of everything else in the economy. Uh, would move, but but leaving that point aside, the idea here was that gold essentially served as base money, or or sometimes referred to as high-powered money, but the money supply more broadly consisted of essentially checkable deposits, uh, savings accounts, and banknotes issued by private banks. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I, I saw that you had a, you have a paper about this. Um, would it be feasible? For the United States to return to the gold standard, and if the answer to that is yes, would it be desirable to? Sure. So I think there's a couple issues to keep in mind with the feasibility argument. So you're right. I have a paper that's assessing the feasibility, and the problem with this sort of approach. I mean, again, not not to criticize my own paper too much, but the problem with this approach is exactly what do we mean by feasible? Mm-hmm. Is it politically feasible? That's a much more difficult question to answer than is it feasible in the sense of, you know, what would be an, an appropriate parity between, say, the dollar and gold? Uh, do Given that, do we have enough gold to make a switch back over? Uh, what, what types of assumptions are we going to make about reserve ratios under the new regime versus the old regime? But the other, the other really big issue, and, I, and this, I think, is sometimes missed by a lot of people, is that one of the things that made the gold standard, the classical gold standard, which we'll define as, say, 1870 to 1913, basically, what made the classical gold standard work as well as it did was that there was international adherence to it. And international adherence to the gold standard meant that if investors saw a country's commitment to the gold standard as credible, they charged them lower interest rates. The idea here is pretty straightforward, is that if I think that you might try to increase your money supply after I make you a loan, I'm going to charge you a higher interest rate to protect myself from the potential and potential inflation that would occur. So what happened was, was that those countries whose commitment to the gold standard was seen as more credible were actually rewarded with more favorable access to 
capital markets, meaning it was, it was somewhat self-enforcing for countries to adhere to the gold standard because if they were to basically turn away from the gold standard, it would heighten, it would increase the price they have to pay to borrow in capital markets. So when we talk about the feasibility, we need to think about not just the United States returning to a gold standard, which I actually uh, I don't think would be a good idea for a lot of reasons but rather saying, well, is it feasible for, say, the world's largest economies to return to a gold standard? And that's what the paper that you mentioned does, is I tried to say, okay, based on some, some assumptions that you could, of course, quibble with, but based on some assumptions to make the analysis a little bit easier, you know, what would be an appropriate reentry parity between the various currency units and gold at that, um, at that parity? Is there enough gold to, say, replace the current level of required reserves in each country's banking system with an equivalent amount of gold? So basically what we're saying is, like, look, if, if the U.S. currently has X amount of bank reserves, is there enough gold for the U.S. to swap its current level of bank reserves with an equivalent amount of gold? Now, what I find is that, yes, in the case of the U.S., we've got more than enough gold to support uh, the resumption uh, given the parity, I, I select a parity that's consistent with the current market price of gold. Uh, so U.S. could do it, but there's lots of other countries that couldn't. Uh, so they would have to acquire a lot of gold from uh, either either non-monetary uses. So you know the gold that's in my wedding ring, or the you know the gold that's in uh, other types of jewelry, for example. Uh, or they would have to convince private owners of monetary gold to 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 uh, turn it in or, or buy it from those folks. Now, that actually seems somewhat likely in the sense that many investors use gold as a hedge against inflation. And, mm-hmm. and you know, if if the gold standard today works like the gold standard of, say, 19, 1870, 1913, on average, you had no deflation, right? In fact, prices, there was a secular, generally prices were declining secularly, meaning there was a, there was a minor deflate, small deflation, uh, deflationary trend over time. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, you could probably – what I find is that you could – there is enough above-ground gold to support a return to the gold standard for the world's largest economies. But the other factor here is that um, as economies are growing, typically what ends up happening is the money supply has to increase in a growing economy if you want to keep prices stable. Uh, so that means that these countries would have to keep acquiring gold every year. So then the next thing I try to estimate is, well, how much gold are they acquiring every year? So Milton Friedman famously estimated this as something like 2.5% of gross national product, which is a huge number. I think today that would be like $300 billion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, the mistake that Friedman made there is he assumed that you would have 100% reserves. And so what I mean by that is that that for every dollar of deposits, there is $1 of gold, right? So there's no fractional reserve banking. That makes it look way more expensive than it actually is. Moreover, it's historically inaccurate. Uh, one of the best examples of a free banking gold standard regime we have is Scotland in the 18th century, mm-hmm. and there there's reported reserve ratios that were as low as 2%, meaning that only like $100 worth of deposits only had $2 worth of gold backing it in the, in the bank vaults, and the banking system works quite well. So Friedman way overestimated it. I use Friedman's approach, but I, take a, I, I use current reserve ratios, and then I look at, well, what would it be under a 2% reserve ratio? So there you would have kind of this essentially two costs that you have to incur, the, the one-time cost of acquiring the gold uh, and then the ongoing maintenance costs of these countries buying gold every year to essentially uh, maintain some constant reserve ratio between their broader money supply uh, and, and, and the amount of gold. The last part that I do there is I actually compare it to how much gold are they currently importing. See, that's the thing that's often missed when the gold standard is criticized, especially on the resource cost grounds, is that they say, well, you know, in a, in a fiat regime, you can avoid all of the resource costs uh, that would be associated with having a gold standard. Well, that's true in an ideally managed fiat system, but that has not been the case uh, since uh, since they've been in existence. And so what's happened is is that the, the market price of gold today is even higher in real terms than it was when we were on a gold standard, meaning that the perhaps paradoxically, the resource costs of, of a fiat standard are actually higher than the resource, resource costs of a gold standard because governments can't credibly commit to not resorting to inflation. Mm-hmm. And the fiat standard is what we have now and is what has become kind of the norm around the world, right? That is correct. That is correct. So uh, the central bank issues essentially liabilities against itself. You know, this would be dollar bills or, or reserves. 
and it turns around and it it uh, uses those reserves to buy assets uh, from uh, primary de- normally primary dealers, and those those assets are usually short-term U.S. government Treasury debt, and then that kind of kicks off a a deposit expansion process uh, where that and that's kind of how they because the Fed doesn't control the money supply directly; they control it indirectly via changes in the monetary base. Uh, but yes, that's the that's the system that we're on today. Mm-hmm. Um, another paper that you did that um, something that I thought was really interesting and um, uh, just an interesting an interesting thing to study is you studied uh, monetary policy in the Confederate States of America, the uh, Civil War government of the Southern states um, from 1861 to 1865, and I never really thought of that you know, as like a, a thing to study before, but it is really interesting from an institutional point of view because you basically have states that were part of the United States, still are part of the United States, um, and so have um, have all, uh, you know, much of the same history and all these other things. But for four years span, they had brand new institutions that they just kind of, you know, that they made up. They had their own president, their own Congress, and their own uh, banking system, and, and you studied that. So it kind of offers like a... A, a sort of a natural experiment in institutions to see what's going on. So I thought that was really interesting. But would you mind uh, kind of summarizing what what, uh, what what you found in that paper? Sure. So the the idea here. Well, let me let me take a step back. So both the Union and the Confederacy they adopted what were ultimately kind of like fiat monies in the war. So the the U.S. government adopted what are known as greenbacks, and they and they relied on greenbacks to help finance the war initially. Although uh, follow, after 1863 or maybe even 1862, they they switched over to using bonds to finance the war primarily through bonds, whereas uh, and, and stopped using essentially the printing press to pay for stuff. Right, but of mm. course. The union, the union experienced a great deal of inflation, just like the South did. Although the union's inflation was very mild compared to the South, the South did something similar. They issued what are called graybacks, uh, and they were they didn't have a central bank, and so they were issued directly by the Treasury. So the Treasury was essentially conducting monetary policy, and the idea would be basically that the Treasury prints a bunch of notes and it turns around and dispenses those notes into circulation by going out and buying the things that the Confederate government required to both, as you mentioned, create new institutions, but then also fight a war. Uh, Wars are expensive, and they typically require a lot of resources very quickly. Mm -hmm. So one way to get a lot of resources very quickly is through what's called seniorage, or inflationary finance. And seniorage is the revenue that governments derive from printing money. So what we do in that paper is basically say, look, uh, we have models of inflationary finance, and we can go, and those models kind of give us a sense of when you are essentially printing too much from a revenue perspective. So many of your listeners are probably familiar with the Laffer curve, right, which is the idea that we can cut taxes and actually raise government revenue. Well, the idea of the Laffer curve uh, obviously predates Laffer. Uh, you could go all the way back to the Federalist Papers, and you can see Alexander Hamilton writing about essentially a Laffer curve for tariffs. But if you go to 1956, there's an article by Martin Bailey, who basically has what is essentially an inflationary Laffer curve. So really, it should be the Bailey curve. And the idea basically is like, look, as you keep printing more money, you're going to collect tax revenue in the form of, of seniorage. But at a certain point, if you're printing too much money, your revenues are actually going to be falling. And so if you were to be at the right of that maximum, what you would want to do is you would want to reduce how much money you're printing. And if you reduce how much money you're printing, you could actually increase the amount of revenue that you derive from printing money. Mm-hmm. So we take that theory, that approach, and we went and looked at uh, the South's monetary policy to figure out, well, where were they on the curve? Were they doing as well as they could or, or were they not? And our the reason that this was interesting to us is that the South pursued or adopted three currency reforms over the course of the war. Uh, the first one was in 1862, the second one was 1863, and the third one was in 1864. This struck us as weird because we put ourselves in the mindset of a, you know, a newly created, you know, policymakers in a newly created government and thinking to ourselves, well, what's our alternative here? We either print like crazy and give ourselves the best possible chance of, of winning, or we don't print like crazy and we lose. So why, but if we lose, we don't owe anything. So who cares? Like, why would you not just print like crazy? Mm-hmm. Right, as it turns out, 
it was the South's most effective means of, of, of raising revenue. So over 60% of the South's expenditures were financed by printing money. So wow. their most effective funding source, yeah, their most effective funding source, and they turned away from it in the middle of the war. That's what kind of, that was the puzzle for my co-author and I when we first saw that. Uh-huh. So we, what we did was we collected data on the South's money, money supply and the price level to essentially create a, what, a time series of real seniorage. And we went and looked at how real seniorage responded to the currency reforms. And we have a very clear prediction. If the South was printing too much money, then the currency reforms should increase the revenue. They should increase seniorage. But we didn't find that. In fact, we find that in each of the three currency reforms, it actually reduced the rev- it actually re- reduced revenue, suggesting that the South was not, print- it was, was not printing enough money, which is crazy because prices increased by over 5,000% between 1861 and 1865. But our findings suggest that that they should have, if you know, they or they could have printed more money and raised additional revenue. And then from there, we get into the politics, and I won't get too much into that, but we get into the politics of the currency reforms and the various incentives that were at play within the Confederate legislature that led to these reforms. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting um, example in history of, of the kind of, again, the thing that I mentioned earlier in the discussion of the influence of, of politics on. Uh, monetary policy. So that's wow. how they conducted monetary policy, but it, it's almost kind of a misnomer to say policy in that sense, it, and because, it, in, in the sense that they weren't really concerned with pursuing certain macroeconomic objectives. They were just trying to raise revenue very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because wars are expensive, especially in 1861. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. That um, One of the things that I learned about the Confederate um, government that I didn't know is that they actually their legislature was like nonpartisan. They made it like a nonpartisan legislature, which I thought was kind of, which I thought was pretty bizarre. But um, but yeah, the um, uh, you know taking that and, and studying that is something I would have never even like thought of doing. So I, that's why I thought that I thought that paper was uh, was really interesting. Um, oh well, thank you. Yeah, sure. Um, I got uh, two two last kind of. Um, exit questions on the monetary policy question, and then we'll get into some some uh, academic stuff. But uh, um, in a fantasy world, um, you have the opportunity to be appointed to the Fed Board of Governors. Would you like to be appointed to the Fed Board of Governors, or would you never want that job in a million years? I don't think I'd ever like that job in a million years. Uh, yeah. To be perfectly honest with you, um, and I'll and there's a couple of reasons for that perspective, and the the. The one that I immediately comes to mind is a, a quote from the great economist George Stigler uh, in, his, in his autobiography where he talks about, because uh, he worked in government for a while, and, and the way he described it is that if you're an economist that's in government and you want to pursue certain objectives, you're going, to have, you're going to have to accept a lot of bad stuff in exchange for very little that isn't. Mm-hmm. And so, again, and that, that's not, that's, by the way, that's not necessarily criticism of politics, right, in a sense. Uh, politics is the art of compromise, and that sort of that sort of compromise happens not just, of course, in the legislature, but it also happens in these various committees at the their various uh, bureaucracies of the government, including the Fed. Uh, but for me, I'm much more interested in just trying to understand how the world works than I am trying to change it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and so I, I I don't know that I would want that sort of position for a variety of reasons. One is the you know the kind of the politics that goes along with it, but two is mainly just that I would rather, again, try to understand why policymakers do what they do, uh, why the economy works the way that it does, uh, than I would um, uh, be on the board. Uh, now, the, for, fortunately for me, I will never be selected for it. Uh, so, that, you know, this is a fun, you know, it's a fun counterfactual, but yeah. uh, there's, a, there's a variety of reasons. And one of those reasons, by the way, is that, uh, and my advisor, uh, professor there at, at Mason, has a great paper on this, uh, uh, Larry White, uh, which is that uh, the Fed is itself kind of the is one of the largest, if not the largest, employer of monetary macroeconomists. So the Fed de- essentially kind of delimits what is inside and outside the mainstream of monetary and macroeconomics. Mm-hmm. And and what that so what that means then is that there are certain people. There's a selection mechanism that happens here. I had you guys in that class read the art, the great article by Armin Alchin on uncertainty and evolution, mm-hmm. which is that there's a there's a selection mechanism that occurs uh, in all sorts of situations where competition is present, which it's always present whenever there's scarcity. And that's true for the selecting of Fed uh, people who work on the Board of Governors. Uh, Will Luther and Alex Salter, two GMU grads 
they have a great paper on this in Public Choice, uh, that there's these certain selection mechanisms in place that make it so that it's not it's not like it's a, a random selection process where they're like, well, let's just like pick an economist to serve on the board of governors, right? Mm-hmm. It's no different than than the people, the pool of, of potential Supreme Court nominees, mm-hmm. right? It's not like it's like anybody, you know, any lawyer or even any federal judge, mm-hmm. right, could do it. There, there's a certain subset uh, of people, and so there's a selection mechanism in place. So, fortunately for me, I don't, I will never probably be in that set. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and, and if you but, ever, but and if you ever are, if you ever are, we'll, we'll, they'll dig up this recording at your confirmation hearing, and so. Um. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly, exactly. So. Uh, you know, if uh, I forget the great quote, it's like, you know, if asked, I won't cert- well, I won't try to repeat it. But yes, I, <laughs> I, I don't really have a whole lot of interest in, in, in that type of work. Sure. And then um, uh, just one final thing on this. Um, are you would you would you consider yourself more optimistic or pessimistic about the direction of monetary policy in the future? Do you think we're do you think we're uh, do you think we've made advances and we're, we're doing better on um, getting the macroeconomic outcomes that we want, or do you think that we are that we are um, uh, limited and and heading the wrong way? So I tend to be a short run pessimist, but a long run optimist. Okay. Uh, in in all sorts of things, uh, not just monetary policy, but I think that the Fed is 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 trying to figure out. It, it got itself into a bit of a pickle, and I don't want to go too much down the rabbit hole with this, but it got itself in a bit of a pickle with paying interest on reserves, which is what it started doing in the midst of the financial crisis and continues to do today. And so the Fed is operating under what's called a, a floor-type system. I won't, As contrasted with a quarter system, I won't get into that. But the point is, is that the Fed, I think, is trying to figure out how does it get back to kind of monetary policy as usual. And they're still trying to figure that out. And how do they do it in a way that's not ultimately – uh, destabilizing for the economy, I think, is a big challenge. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I'm kind of short-run pessimistic. In the long run, I think that uh, that the financial crisis kind of reopened what was considered by many to be very, like, quote, I hate this phrase, but settled science, mm-hmm. uh, in that it was like, look, we had the great moderation, right, from 1980, you know, two or whatever, all the way up to 2000, 2008, things were really good. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was not crazy amounts of inflation. There was not huge recessions. You know, things life was pretty good. And I think that sort of lulled us into a false sense of security. So it was like, well, there's really no reason to study uh, monetary and macro anymore because we figured it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I think what's what that showed uh, shown was that that was kind of a uh, an arrogant position to have to have adopted. And so now there's a there's a whole renewed interest. I think. In fact, that's the whole reason I decided to I you know quit my career and go to graduate school was because of that event, the financial crisis. So mm-hmm. I think there's a whole new generation of people that, that got interested in economics because of that. And, I, and I'm hopeful that in the long run, the work that all those folks are doing will move us in a positive direction, whether that's better monetary policy by the Fed or some new alternative monetary regime that we haven't even considered yet. So mm-hmm. short-run pessimistic, long-run optimistic. All right, yeah. And uh, let's talk about the um, – uh, let's transition now to talk about your – uh, your path to being a economics professor. Um, did you, it, it sounds like you didn't always see yourself doing that. Um, you didn't, you, uh, but you, you left a career to, to go to grad school. Would you mind uh, telling us about that a little bit? Sure. So I, uh, I actually started off as a music major and I switched to wow. economics, not because I, yeah, uh, played tuba. Uh, tuba. So it, was, it was a tuba. Yeah. It was a tuba performance major. Wow. Um, and so I did that for three years. Uh, and then I started, I got a job bartending, and I, and I frankly just got more interested in partying than I did in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, I re- and, it, and at the same time, it was, I was really like, look, this was probably a mistake to try to major in music. I probably should be doing something else. So I tried to switch over into the business school, but the challenge at the time was that I couldn't get, like, my grades were okay, but I couldn't get into the business school because I didn't quite have the grades there yet. So I was like, well, I'll start taking the classes. Uh, that I can get into, even though I'm not necessarily a business major, and that, of course, included economics. And I found economics interesting when I was taking those classes, but I was, frankly, a horrible student. <laughs> the worst, almost, almost the worst you could possibly imagine. And, and basically because I just lacked the maturity. For me, there's a lot of people, I think, uh, myself included, who would do well to basically not go to college right after high school, but rather go figure their life out a little bit and figure out what they care about, what they're passionate about, whatever. And then, and then go, and then if it makes sense, you know, go back to, go back to college. Uh, for other people, that's not the case. My wife, for example, 
uh, she very much has a personality where she was like, I know what I want to do. I'm going to go there. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be done. Mm -hmm. And and it worked very well for her. But anyway, I ended up, uh, so let's, so I basically an undergraduate for six years because I did three years in music, right? And almost none of that transferred to anything else, as you can imagine. <laughs> so then, I, then I'm like, okay, well, here's another three years. And then I'm, I'm at this point, I'm burnt out. I'm, I'm like, look, you know, my friends have graduated and gotten jobs. I'm still doing this, whatever. So I actually just dropped out of college after six years without a degree. So that was 2005. So I started in 99. That was in 2005. Hmm. And then the financial crisis happened in 2008. Uh, and my, uh, well, now wife and, and mother-in-law, they encouraged me. Uh, to go back to school to study economics because everybody was blaming the crisis on capitalism, and I didn't think that was right, but I couldn't fully articulate why I thought that that was a mistaken belief. And so they encouraged me to go back to school, and it just so happened that uh, the school I went to, which is the University of Colorado, they were offering a program called CU Complete, where they were reaching out to people who got close to finishing their degrees but never did, and they were offering them like night school and online classes and whatnot. So fall of 2009, I re-enroll in college, I've got a full-time job. I was working in, in technology sales, you know, traveling all over the country and this, that, and the other. But then when, I'm, when I am home, I'm doing school either online or at night, and I go from being one of the worst students you can possibly imagine to 4.0. You know, and again, that's just maturity. It wasn't, it's not that I got smarter. Yeah. It's just that I worked harder and I got more mature. Uh, so, but even after that, I graduated in 2010. Even after that, I actually got involved in politics for a little bit, which is another reason why I know I don't want to be on the board of governors. <laughs> and I came to the conclusion that if you, if you, if I wanted to, if I did want to make the world a better place, uh, insofar as I'm capable of accomplishing something like that, uh, that I could do that better by sharing my passion for economics with with young people, but then also teaching them how to think like an economist, because I think thinking like an economist leads you to a certain uh, a certain outlook about things. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I, I hesitate to call it like center right, but I think that there may there may be somewhat of a tendency there. But the point is, is just I actually don't really care about the politics. It's but you know thinking about the world in terms of of trade offs and alternatives and whatnot. And so I convinced my wife. I was like, you know, this is what I want to do. There's only one place I want to study economics, and this is true. It's the only place I applied. I want to study economics at George Mason. It's the only place I want to go. If I don't get in there, I'm just not getting a Ph.D. Yeah. Uh, now, fortunately for me, I got in, and, and so I went there. But that's how the that was kind of my path. So I, I'm very non-traditional. A lot of students, uh, you know, especially it, it, well, not not just at GMU. I think a lot of economics graduate students in general, they kind of know from. Uh, early on, you know, in, in maybe in their undergrad, maybe even in high school, they're like, yes, I want to study economics. This is what I want to do with my life. And so, you know, it's like, boom, boom, boom. I just go do this and, and whatnot. But for me, it was kind of a roundabout discovery process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, it's uh, similar to um, a couple episodes ago we had um, uh, Professor Ristisi on, um, and he has a similar story where uh, economic crisis, in his case, it was the the oil crisis in the seventies, because he's he's a little bit older than you. Uh, no, no, no offense, Professor Steezy, but um, uh, he, so that crisis kind of motivated him uh, in the same way. In the same way, it sounds like that it, uh, the two thousand eight recession motivated you to uh, to go into economics education, and so uh, that, that's kind of interesting how they, those kind of <laughs> those stories kind of mirror each other. Uh, I wonder how many I wonder how many free market people have been spawned from uh, from. Uh, um, uh, economic crises. That's kind of an interesting thing to think about. But um, uh, so you um, so you did that. You got your PhD here at George Mason, and now you're at uh, Angelo State University. How did you get? How did you get out there? Uh, so for you know the listeners that don't know how the academic job market works, I have uh, no idea how the academic job market works. That's kind of what okay, I'm getting so at. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's unpack this a little bit. So uh-huh. it's uh, it, it's very nerve wracking. I'll say that. I believe that. it. It's very nerve wracking. Um, I also say that I, this is an open offer I make to anybody. If you you know if you are listening to this and you're going to the academic job market, I know how stressful it is. And if you need somebody to talk to, reach out to me. Because uh, <laughs> I, I I benefited from people who. Uh, who were willing to talk to me when I was going through it. So I'm, I want to pay that forward. So uh-huh. anybody who's listening who needs somebody to talk to, feel free to reach out. But anyway, um, essentially starting in maybe the last week of August, uh, first week of September, uh, schools are going to start posting jobs for the following academic year. So it's not like a normal labor market where openings are kind of rolling all the time. It's basically a market where all of the potential openings 
for nine months into the future open up within essentially a six-week period, right, which is basically <laughs> the beginning of, of September to midway through October, well, maybe to the end of October. So six- to eight-week period. That sounds um, awful. Yes. And so, you know, you're, you end up, you know, I think all told, I want to say I applied to 110 positions. Wow. Uh, which is, which, yeah, which is a little below average, actually. I think the average number is around 120. Jeez. And so you, yeah, so you, you're, you're filling out all these applications, you know, so you, you have to submit a, a, obviously cover letter and your CV. That's pretty common, but then a couple of things you'll need to think about submitting. And by the way, you, you know, you need to tailor the cover letter. So you know, mm-hmm. you're sitting there, you know, doing research on the school, but then, um, you're going to have a research statement, which is kind of like, well, what's your research agenda? Like, what motivates you? What do you work on? You know, so for me, for example, I'm interested in, in economic history, but really specifically monetary history and the, and the interplay between historical monetary episodes and politics. So I had a short one-page essay that kind of explained my research program, what I'm working on, and what I'd like to work on in the future. And then you're going to give a teaching statement, which is kind of a, an essay, one-page essay on how are you in the classroom? What do you emphasize and whatnot? Uh, so you put all that material together, um, and then you just start applying for jobs as they come out. They're all posted on, uh, primarily all posted on a website uh, hosted by the American Economic Association called the Joe J O E, which just stands for Job Openings for Economists. You know, economists are not a creative creative bunch, <laughs> hence our our acronyms. Uh-huh. And then you just start you just start applying, right? Um, and now, you know, for my wife and I. There were certain places we knew, we, like there were certain places that were non-negotiable. My wife would just not move there. So obviously, some of those places I didn't bother applying to. Mm-hmm. Um, but but by and large, you know, we threw a pretty big net. Um, and you're, you know, the other part is you're, you have to look for the right position, right? So it's you know, schools might be hiring for a macroeconomist, or they might be hiring for say an econometrician. So I didn't bother applying to schools that were hiring an econometrician because I'm not an econometrician. Mm-hmm. I work with econometricians, but it would be you know so. Uh, so anyway, the point is you're kind of going through and you're filtering and you're doing all these job applications. And really by Thanksgiving, it's, it's winding down, although there are still jobs that are always coming out into the spring, but it's usually like one a day, one, maybe one a day, sometimes as slow as like one a week after Thanksgiving. And then at that point, the schools start calling their final, the people that they would like to interview at the uh, American Economic Association meeting. So Marginal Revolution University there at, at George Mason, they have a great little video called The Running of the Economist, which is supposed to be kind of a play on the running of the bulls in Pamplona. Uh, and what happens is, is that you go to the AA meetings, which are the first weekend in January uh, of every year. And, you know, hopefully you have a fair number of interviews, but you're basically running from hotel room to hotel room to hotel room where you're interviewing with different schools. Uh, so I ended up having, I think, I want to say at the AAs, I want to, I had, I think, twelve or thirteen interviews. Oh my gosh! Uh, and then, I, and then, and then I had other interviews, and then I had other interviews that were kind of over Skype or you know phone call, like the conversation we're having here. Uh, but really, you know, you're you're going kind of from from room to room to room, and they're you know half an hour to forty five minute, or excuse me, half an hour to one hour long interviews, and they'll ask you about your teaching, they'll ask you about your research, stuff like that, um, and then. Uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the following weeks, you know, hopefully what will happen is that you're going to get called from at least one of those places that you interviewed with, and they're going to offer to fly you out. And so they'll fly you out to uh, the school. Uh, you know, you'll have dinner with some of the faculty. So the night you get there, you might have dinner with some of the faculty. The next day, you're typically going to give a research presentation. So I know that you guys, you obviously have a lot of listeners there that are familiar with George Mason. So it's very similar to the, the PPE seminar that um, – that Professor Betke hosts or the public choice seminar that the Center for the Study of Public Choice hosts every week where somebody comes in and presents a paper. You're going to do something like that. You're going to present your job market paper. Uh, and then um, you might teach a class. You might guest lecture so they can kind of get a sense of how well, how well you do in the classroom. And then you'll, you know, you'll meet with other faculty, you interview, you go out to lunch, you go out to dinner, and then you'll head back. And then hopefully within a couple of days you'll, you know, you'll have an offer. Um, so for me personally, what happened with Angelo State was that they actually interviewed at the Southern Economic Association meetings, which are in November, right before Thanksgiving every year. And so uh, they selected to fly me out, which was awesome. And they scheduled to fly out actually a week after the AEA interviews. Uh, so I was that's way earlier than most people ever fly out. And then I had an offer, I think, less than two weeks after the AEA interviews. And, and it was a great offer, and I'm thrilled to be here. And so there, there was really, and there was really, there was really no. It didn't make sense, I guess. What I'm saying is to to wait and see what else would happen because this was a, 
I think the, the offer was great on multiple margins. So you don't want to turn down an offer in hand to wait and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, and, and again, this was, you know, that this was a fantastic opportunity. So that was, you know, that was the other reason, but that's kind of the process. That's how, um, the whole, you know, uh, academic job market works that is wild that is wild i i I didn't really know how that worked and so um wow that's absolutely crazy so 120 applications and at least what two dozen interviews is that oh no uh much less than that usually the return on interviews is going to be about 10 percent. okay so like Uh, okay so like one dozen yeah so i think i total between in person and then Skype and and whatnot, I want to say I had like fifteen interviews wow. all altogether. Um, so just just a little over ten percent, but I think the John Colley, I forget where he's at, but he he um, he posts a, a updated paper every year at the AA's website that kind of gives a like an overview of the academic job market. So like, <laughs> what's the process? Um, what's the you know what are the statistics on how many job applications people fill out versus how many interviews versus how many flyouts. Um, and so you can go look that up and kind of get a sense. In fact, anybody who's listening to this is thinking about getting a PhD in economics, and even if you're already in the process of getting a PhD in economics, you absolutely should go read that paper so that you can, uh, you know, you kind of come in both eyes open to exactly what it is you're going to be putting yourself through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, that way you're, you're under no delusions about what, uh, what that looks like. Yeah, and... Um... And, and so you're out there at Angelo State, and one of the other things that I know you're you're affiliated with is the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University. Um, I, it's pretty obvious from their name what perspective they're coming from. So, uh, what, um, uh, what, what, how, how was that? Was that part of the? Was that part of your decision? And, and what do you do there? Yeah, no, absolutely, it was. So, you know, most most uh, people, you know, most academics who get academic jobs. Uh, you know, they get hired by a university and they're, say, a professor of economics or a professor of history or, or, you know, professor of physics or whatever. But very rarely do they actually get to be affiliated with some type of, like, academic research institute in addition to their responsibility. So what happened here in Angela State was that um, there, were, there were folks here who wanted to extend the free market institute uh, that exists up in Lubbock, which has been there around for about seven years, they wanted to extend it down here to Angelo State because Angelo State is actually part of the Texas Tech system. Oh, which, okay. For the listeners that don't know, the the Texas Tech system is essentially the state university system that services West Texas. Okay. Right? Uh, you know, you know, you mentioned everything's bigger in Texas. Well, Texas itself is just a big state, and so mm-hmm. um, you have you have a university system that is essentially there to cater to the needs of the West Texas community. So Angelo State's part of Texas Tech. So what we wanted to do, what, what the, the goal was, was to extend the Free Market Institute down to Angelo State and start an economics major. And so I, I'm a professor of economics here at Angelo State, but I'm also the assistant director of the Free Market Institute at Angelo State. And we do a, a, a bunch of different types of programming here where we have public lectures, for example. So uh, two weeks ago, we had Russ Sobel from the Citadel talking about free markets, entrepreneurship, and and uh, and prosperity. In about a month, we're going to have Randall Holcomb from Florida State to come talk about crony capitalism. And then in April, we're actually going to have Professor Coyne there at, at GMU out to talk about uh, his work with Professor Hall on the militarization of police and its, and its link up with uh, the U.S. foreign policy over the last 20 years. So we do that sort of programming. We have uh, reading groups for students, and then we're also, like I said, building a major, which is another amazing opportunity here. Another reason I wanted to come here is that I get to be part of designing a major from the ground up. Like, what classes should we take? How should we, you know, how should we teach uh, these different types of topics and, and whatnot? So, you know, of course, with me involved, you know, we're getting a very he- a heaping helping of Masonomics. So there's going to be public choice. There's going to be an uh, industrial organization from kind of a public choice perspective. You know, monetary and macro will be very similar to the experience you had in in my classroom. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's what's going on there. And then I'm also affiliated as a research assistant professor with the Free Market Institute up in Lubbock. And so uh, that, that in, in my capacity in that role, that's primarily what, uh, it, what my re- what, that's primarily my research aspect. So here at Angelo State, it's primarily teaching and, and doing work to build a major and then, and then the assistant director role with the FMI down here. And then my research work is kind of associated with the, the folks up in Lubbock. So it's a like it's a not only is that I think a dream job just in general uh, for, from somebody with my own my own persuasion of of the things, uh, but it's also 
a dream starting job because I get to come in and I'm learning how to do not just, you know, be a normal assistant professor of economics, which is cool, but I get to learn, like, the fundraising side of things or, you know, writing and applying for grants. And I get to bring speakers in from around the country. I get to meet people that I would have never, ever gotten to meet in person. Like, I got to meet George Will uh, hey. in October, <laughs> which, yeah, which is a, a huge hero of mine. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and so that sort of, I mean, it's just a dream job. There's just so few job opportunities, whether they be academic or otherwise, where that sort of thing um where that sort of thing occurs. So that's kind of my, uh, uh, again, another reason why when I got this offer, I didn't wait to see what other offers I was going to get. <laughs> it was yeah. like, nope, we're going to do this. Yeah, exactly. So that's wow, kind that's, of the, that's kind of the... <laughs> Yeah, wow. Uh, I mean, um, so you're, yeah, so you're just starting a new thing out there. So we're, so we're going to have, we're going to have like a, we're going to have like a little extension of George Mason out there in, in West Texas. Um, well, I, I, I think that, so, you know, maybe, yes, but I would also say like an extension of kind of the, what the work is being done at the Free Market Institute up in Lubbock as well. Oh, but, yeah. Of course, there's a, lot, there's a lot of overlap there because several of the faculty at the Free Market Institute are themselves GMU grads. So the, the Free Market Institute up there is run by Ben Powell. He's a GMU grad. Alex Salter's up there. He's a GMU grad. Uh, and Adam Martin is up there, and he's also a GMU grad. Uh, and then actually uh, Kevin and Robin Greer are up there. So Kevin taught at GMU uh, uh, in the past, and I believe Robin got her Ph.D. from GMU. So there, that sort of thing is there. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think it's kind of a, you know, my, um, you know, my perspective is that it's a, it's a great opportunity for us to kind of bring the sort of price theory that you get at, say, a place like George Mason um, and the sort of monetary macro perspective you get at George Mason and to, to bring it down here and to collaborate and extend the work that's being done at the Free Market Institute up in Lubbock down here to, you know, create something pretty neat for the undergrads. We don't have a graduate program, uh, so, it, you know, something, but we can create something very cool for the undergrads, and hopefully, you know, we can start uh, getting undergrads more, more interested in majoring in economics and maybe even pursuing PhDs in economics, whether that's up at the PhD program uh, with the Free Market Institute or uh, or elsewhere. Yeah, and um, in terms of that transition uh, on your end from being a student to being a professor, um, well, what's that like? And is there, uh, you know, what classes are you teaching right now? And, and is there um, is there some kind of like normal way that professors get worked into a a schedule like that, or is it just kind of uh, everyone on their own? So I think. I, so I, I don't know about, like, how the, the, the process normally works. So, you know, the, the department chair uh, obviously has certain requirements that need to be met in terms of, I you know, we have to offer this many classes. I need teachers. Um, so for, for me, what I'm teaching right now, I'm teaching two sections. In the fall, I taught two sections of principles of macro. This semester, I'm teaching one section of principles of macro and money and banking. So I, I'm teaching two classes each semester. Next year, I'll be teaching three classes each semester in the fall, it'll be price theory, industrial organization, and money and banking. I don't know what the spring will be uh, just yet. Um, but as far as the transition goes, I mean, it, it's I was I was lucky in a lot of ways uh, being at Mason and getting the chance to teach my third year because I had a uh, what you would sometimes hear called a two-two teaching load, which is two classes every semester. So I'm I got used to it my third year of like, look, I have to teach two classes in addition to doing research and everything else that that my fellowship required. So I was kind of I was used to that level of work. So it wasn't too big of a transition for me to come here and say, okay, well you got a two-two teaching load, right? Well I've had that before. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to do research. Okay, yeah, well I had to do that before. There are some additional service elements, you know. So not only is there the stuff with the Free Market Institute and and working on that stuff here. But also the you know serving on various committees. So again, your listeners that are thinking about getting a PhD, once you get hired, uh, it's not just that you get to teach economics, uh, but you're also going to be serving on various committees. So for me, I serve I think on the uh, curriculum committee uh, overall for the College of the the Department of Accounting, Economics, and Finance, uh, on then on the economics curriculum subcommittee, obviously, uh, and then I'm also on a university wide assessment committee uh, that looks at you know how we assess. Um, how we assess what students are learning in a variety of disciplines. So that is probably the biggest add-on to, you know, the responsibility is the service component, uh, at least for me. Now, it's going to be different for other graduate students who either maybe didn't teach as much as, as I did or, or, or just had a very different uh, graduate experience than I did. But uh, that's how it worked out for me. Well, well um, 
uh, that's about all we got time for today. So uh, thank you so much, and uh, it sounds really it sounds really amazing uh, what what you're starting up out there. And I, I wish you the best on it because um, yeah, that just sounds like sounds like a lot of work, but it sounds like it's also uh, really rewarding too. No, it, it's absolutely the uh, it's like I said, it's a, it's a dream job. Thank you so much for having me on, and and uh, and it's great to. Uh, talk to the the GMU folks, and, and hopefully I'll get to see some of you guys soon when I'm out there visiting again. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, do you want to tell listeners where they can follow you on social media or contact you or anything like that? Yeah, so you can follow me uh, on Twitter. I believe it's just at Brian Cutsinger. Uh, and then I've got my website, which I promise I'll get fixed. Uh, my Capital One credit card got stolen, but <laughs> and so it went down. But basically it's just briancutsinger.com. Uh, so you can follow me there. But, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and and uh, and, uh, and whatnot. All right. Uh, thank you so much. Absolutely, Dominic. Thank you. All right. Uh, Loose Vegan Indeterminate is a production of the Economic Society at George Mason University and is now available just about anywhere you can find podcasts. That includes Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Overcast, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, and Breaker. Special thanks to the wonderful folks at WGMU, including General Manager Henry Fisher, Production Director Grace Snyder, and Faculty Advisor Roger Smith. You can follow the Economic Society on Twitter. Our handle is at EconSocietyGMU. To see our blog or upcoming events, you can find us on the web at go.gmu.edu slash econsociety. Until next time, abstain from that which is another's, make a becoming use of that which is your own, and whatever you do, don't be a man of system. Catch you next time on Loose Vegan Indeterminate.